Hello, and welcome to the Her and Him podcast. I'm Dale. And I am Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what you get is a podcast. Nice. I notice that you're over there and you're not knitting or sewing, etc. Etc. Maybe I'm doing etc., but I don't <laughs> it, know what etc. is, so... It's possible. Yeah, I'm not knitting. You're right. Do you I've know tried. how to knit? Well, mm, yes and no. It seems like knitting and crocheting doesn't run strongly in your family. We have a blanket <laughs> that your mother made that is quite loosely held together. Yeah, she tried taking up knitting. I think it's knitting. I uh, See, I don't even know the difference between knitting and crocheting. I know that I've been to like... Crocheting a, is one stick. Knitting is two sticks. I love That's it. all I know. Uh, yeah. I, mm, how do you know that? Because I've known people in my who life. knit? Yeah. Women who knit and sewed. And et cetera. And et cetera. <laughs> well, why are we talking about knitting and sewing, et cetera? Because there was a man who his, his name is Owen Strayan. <laughs> What's his name? Owen Strayan. I always I remember the Owen, but I couldn't remember the last name. Owen Strayan. Yeah, so our man Owen. Yeah, our I don't I wouldn't say that, but he tweeted. I think it was on Mother's Day. Was it on Mother's Day when he sent out this tweet? Anyways, it's kind of like all the buzz in the Christian world right now. Um and we're so in the buzz and, and in the know, of course. But It was the day after I, Mother's okay, Day. Yeah, yeah. I looked it up. So he had tweeted in response to the fact that um, Saddleback had ordained three women mm-hmm. in their, on their staff and had given them the official title of pastor. Yeah, there was like youth pastor, junior high pastor, children's pastor. Right. And so they were already serving in these roles within their church anyways. It's just instead of calling them director, they decided it was fitting to call them pastor. And Saddleback is a Southern Baptist church, so SBC. And uh, SBC is not about women preaching, being called pastor, being ordained, like anything like that. I'm sure they're fine with director. They could be a leader, but they have to be called director. Well, it depends on where you sit on the spectrum of complementarity. Because there's some within the SBC that would say, no, like your women aren't allowed to preach. They're they're not allowed to give announcements. They're not allowed to pray. Yeah. So because of what Saddleback did, SBC is kind of... In a tiffy. Yeah. They're pretty upset about this. There's a kerfuffle. (laughs) A kerfuffle. So Owen... Yes, Owen... Our man Owen decides to (laughs) send a tweet out. (laughs) You want me to read the tweet? Can you please read this tweet? Because I was going to try and recall what it is, but I think we must give proper credit and actually read it word for word. Yeah. So the tweet reads as follows. Christian women, God loves the vocation of homemaking, laundry, changing diapers, menu planning. Preparing meal after meal, teaching children, helping and supporting your husband, praying, sewing, knitting, etc. The world scoffs, but all of this work will be rewarded by God. Oh, thank you, Owen. Thank you so much for validating me. I appreciate it. I needed that. Mm -hmm. I just really needed Owen to remind me that 
this is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. You know, it's okay. You don't have to worry yourself with anything other than those things. You know, (laughs) obviously... God loves that you don't worry about anything else other than those things. Yeah. And I'm the only one who can worry about those things. You, You cannot. So you... Don't you touch a dirty diaper. No. Don't you pick up the laundry. That's not my vocation. Don't you... uh, I don't want to enter into your sphere. Right. Don't meal plan because that is certainly in the original Greek That women should do that? Meal plan. I mean, has Owen ever heard of CrossFit trainers? (laughs) There's all these dudes out here doing their own meal planning. Well, and there's just so many issues with this, especially if you're... He's trying to make the statement that this is the place for the woman. Um, but many of the things that he listed, you cannot find biblical support for. I mean, changing diapers. I'm almost certain that's a, a newer thing. Babies were just pooping in whatever before? I mean, when were maybe, diapers in bed? Maybe they had cloth diapers back then. I mean, I guess what? Jesus was wrapped in a swaddle. That must have been his diaper. Yeah. Swaddling cloth. Or a diaper. I know. I mean, I'd, I'd have to look up, like, what was the first century equivalent of a diaper? It was probably less pleasant than what we have. Oh, yeah. We just tossed that thing. Yeah. There's this whole movement among uh, some eco-conscious mothers to go back to cloth diapers. Well, it's not just mothers. It's parents. There's a lot of dads that are a little bit more involved than I feel like the mothers are leading the charge on this one because... I, I know a few most, dads that really? actually... Yeah. I know a few dads that... They are the ones who had to convince their wives to do the cloth diaper thing. Oh, interesting. You would have to convince me because I'd be like, nah, that's nasty. Chuck it. Yeah, I I can't. No. But anyways, back to this tweet. Back to the original topic of this podcast. Uh, It's just really interesting what Owen said. And the response has been one way or the other. And it's very telling. Yes, it has been either people who hitting their like button 5,000 times or quite the opposite. Yeah, it's been very interesting uh, to be on Christian Twitter these days because on the one side, there's been like a a noticeable uptick in misogynistic tweeting. And then there has been reaction to that uptick Mm -hmm. in response to some of the things that are going on. And so what we wanted to do today is not necessarily dive into all those things, although we we sidetracked ourselves and dove into them, but just to set the scene for what we want to talk about, which is we want to talk about women in leadership. And we've talked about women in leadership a number of different times on this podcast. Uh, So today we wanted to take a little bit of a different approach. We're not going to talk about the theological distinctives between complementarian or egalitarian. I think there's some previous episodes where we walk through all the Bible verses and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. What we would like to do is actually just to look at women in the New Testament who were leaders. Who were they? What did they do? What were the kinds of things that they were involved in? And kind of to celebrate those women, because we oftentimes don't celebrate them and will depending on our theological stance, will actually minimize some of their contributions that that they had made to the early church. Yeah, and even when we do remember certain female leaders or we're aware of certain female leaders that we read about in the biblical text, a lot of the times we want to explain away their influence and 
suggests that these women in leadership are an exception rather than the rule. And they're just very unique. And this is not actually something we should come to expect from women. This is just a unique situation to these particular women within the biblical text. And we would like to argue against that and suggest there are a lot more women within the text of Scripture that we can look to and actually see forms of leadership that the biblical authors are previewing us to. Yeah, and I've actually recently been reading a book by Beth Allison Barr, and it's called The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. And in that book, she really argues what you just said, that when we look back at not only biblical texts, but throughout church history, we tend to delete and minimize the aspects of that that don't comport with a given theology on gender roles. And so uh, we think it's important to undelete those things and reemphasize those things uh, just so we can get a fuller image of what the biblical text actually says about the people who were there living it out uh, as it was occurring. And something interesting about her book is she's not a theologian, and I don't think she ever claims to be that, but she is a history professor. So she teaches history, and specifically, um, she, I, I think that she's a bit more specialized in the history of the biblical text. Would that is that correct? Uh, her emphasis is uh, medieval. Okay. Yeah, the medieval period. Yeah. So... I had listened to an interview by her on another podcast, and I actually really liked what she said. So I I enjoyed her book, but what she had said is her hope for this book was not that she would convince everyone of shifting their view of women in leadership, but what her hope was is regardless of where you stand on this issue, you can look at her book and read it and see the historical facts that are plain throughout culture and throughout time, and then compare those to the biblical text and listen to the argument that she develops and walk away saying someone can actually hold to a different view and they are not heretics. And that was her her large emphasis is whether you are for women in leadership or you're against women in leadership, we can look to other sources and look to scripture itself and the way that it fits in its time and in its context and walk away understanding that you can hold a different view and not be a heretic. Because I think for, for far too long, we've been in this bubble of the way that you're supposed to view women is one way, and that is they are not allowed to hold any form of leadership and they are not called to any form of leadership, especially within the church. And if you believe anything other than that, you are a heretic. And her big pushback is actually that's not true based on historical evidence and based on biblical evidence. So I recommend no matter what side of the issue you sit on, read this book. Super insightful. She's a great author. And I also appreciate the fact that it's not a judgmental book against a side that is opposite of hers. Yeah, I would say that that's fair. And it is interesting how we have uh, so often hitched in in kind of conservative evangelical, we have hitched complementarian theology to biblical inerrancy itself. That unless you accept complementarity, then you don't support inerrancy. And so instead of 
saying this is one possible interpretation. We say this is what the Bible says, and any other interpretation is denying the authority of Scripture. And so that's an interesting kind of power move that has existed within mm-hmm. uh, complementarian theology. And so that's what she's trying to attack. She's saying, like, you can still be a complementarian, but, like, can you at least affirm the fact that there are other views that are biblically valid? All that to be said, we want to dive into these New Testament ladies because... um we're like, this we're like is a, the ladies podcast. Who runs the world? Girls. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who's our first lady that we want to talk about? <laughs> uh, we are going to start with probably one of the most well-known women in the Bible, I would say. I would think she's like the shining star. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And... A lot of the times we only know her as that, which is great. We we don't want to take away from that. But there are some key details that give us insight into a bit of her leadership and influence outside of her having only been a woman who carried Jesus, which again is big, but she also had some influence and leadership outside of just being the mother of Jesus. Right. But I think even in that story, that's an important story to reveal the kind of person that she was. Cause that's where we first meet Mary is when it's at the beginning of Luke's gospel. She's actually the second recipient of news about a miracle birth. And the first one was Zechariah, a chapter previous to her. And the thing about Zechariah, Zechariah was a, an older guy. He was a priest in the temple. And so he's doing service in the temple, which actually was a high honor because you didn't get to do that you know, every day. It was kind of like a once in a lifetime thing that you would go into the temple to do what he was doing. And in that moment, the angel Gabriel comes to him. He says, there's going to be this miracle child. Your wife is going to be pregnant. He says, how's that possible? I'm old. My wife's old. I, I'm not, I don't believe it. And because of his unbelief, Gabriel strikes him mute and he's not able to speak basically for the duration of his wife's miracle pregnancy. And that was a judgment on his unbelief. Then this respected, faithful priest who was doing the work of God we see his unbelief. And then you pan over to the next story, which is Mary, who's like a 14-year-old girl, betrothed to Joseph, isn't wealthy, isn't educated, uh, is basically a nobody. And Gabriel comes to her and says, you will be the mother of the Messiah. And it's going to be a miracle birth because it's going to be a virgin birth. And she responds in faith to that. And so there's this big contrast to the holy, religious, respected, experienced priest and the 14-year-old girl who's a nobody, where she's the one who responded in faith and, and was expectant that, that God could do these things through her. And so that, that's kind of the, the characterization that we get of Mary from the very beginning. And then obviously she mothers Jesus and raises him up. And then even after uh, Jesus dies and resurrects and ascends, she is there with the the apostles in that upper room experience. She's, she's mentioned among them, and she's mentioned as a leader in the early church. And so she's a part of the early movement of the church as a respected individual, not just because she gave birth to Jesus, but because she's also a leader within that movement. 
Yeah, and we also see a bit of her leadership when it comes to the apostles gathering together to decide who is going to replace Judas Iscariot. And she is actually one of the people in that group that is part of that conversation and part of that decision. I mean, ultimately, we understand that being the Holy Spirit, but she is an influencer in the same way the other apostles were. And so um, that's just an interesting little piece in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that sometimes I think we read and we miss like, oh, wow, Mary was part of that conversation as a leader. And in the same way, when you were talking about earlier, um, she was there after Jesus had ascended and she's influential in a lot of these uh, ways that we see the early church begin to develop. But too many times we kind of write her off and explain her out because, well, of course she was there. She was the mother of Jesus. Well, that's not actually an of course she was. Based on culture, she shouldn't have been there, even if she was the mother. Like, just because she was the mom, it didn't give her a pass to be there. Culture was culture, and she was still a woman at the end of the day. So this is one of those scenarios where, again, we try and explain away the situation and call it a one-off rather than counting it as normative within the Christian culture that Jesus was desiring for the church to have. Yeah, so that's Mary, the mother of Jesus. She is not, by any stretch, the only famous Mary in the New Testament. There's quite a few. (laughs) There are lots of Marys. And so our our next two, we'll kind of put them together, are Mary and Martha of Bethany. And so these were two sisters, Mary and Martha. They had a brother named Lazarus. Uh, But Mary was another leader uh, that God really used to confuse expectations (laughs) and to Mm -hmm. empower those who had not previously been considered as part of uh, leadership within a religious movement. And so in Luke 10, Jesus uh, is at Mary and Martha's home in Bethany, and he's there with the disciples, and Jesus is teaching, and Mary actually comes and sits at his feet. And this was super annoying to her sister, Martha, who was working to host and feed Jesus and all of his disciples and the whole thing. Uh, That was the natural duty of a woman per Owen Strayan. But Mary, on the other hand, she had taken it upon herself to sit at the feet of Jesus as a disciple. And that was really the role of a man. You couldn't become the disciple of a rabbi unless you were a man. And so Martha comes in. She's like, Mary, what are you doing? We're supposed to be in the kitchen like good women do. And that's when Jesus chimes in. And he says to her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. And so this was an affirmation of Jesus that Mary could be just as much a disciple as, you know, John and Peter and whoever else Mm. and all the other disciples and followers that were there listening to him teach and preach. Yeah. And Mary really serves as an example of how Jesus came to empower women. And we see this a lot in Luke. And we'll probably actually reference a lot of verses that are in Luke. And it's because Luke is pointing us to these women that Jesus empowered and Jesus gave value to and he gave honor to because like men, they are created in the image of God. But what's interesting about Mary is we see her partnering in this work 
of the kingdom of God in the same way that the the disciples had partnered with Jesus and began to carry out the mission of Christ after Jesus left. And that is the same of Mary. And um, it should be said that Martha was also a key player in this Jesus movement from the early um, from the early set out too, because she was a close friend to Jesus along with her sister Mary and both her brother Lazarus. So oftentimes we'll see Lazarus and understand him as being a key player in this, but we again like to write off Mary and Martha. I think because that story is so famous, like Martha's like, mm, you're the one that got it wrong on this one. Right. And they're like, oh, and then you, you must not be hmm. much of anybody. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about Martha, Martha was there talking to Jesus, having a, actually a theological discussion with Jesus mm. when Lazarus had gotten sick and died right before Jesus rose him right. from the dead. The the one who's kind of the interlocutor for that story is Martha. She's providing this context and she's saying things that Jesus is affirming and then kind of changing and, and morphing and taking on to himself. And it's one of those I am statements in the Gospel of John where he says, mm-hmm. I am the resurrection in the life. And with that, he raised Lazarus from the dead to yeah. to show the power and the truth of, the, of what he, he meant when he said he's the resurrection and the life. It was Martha who was the instigator of that mm. conversation and set the stage for Jesus to to say those words. That's an important detail that I don't think I've caught in reading the account. Because you remember Lazarus. And you remember Mary. And you remember Mary. <laughs> but for some reason, Martha, 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 you don't yeah. remember her. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we, got, you, we got another Mary. We do. <laughs> ne- next so Mary. Come on down. Marys. Yeah. yeah. Mary Magdalene. So she was a prominent female follower of Jesus as well. Uh, we originally meet her in a very different way than the other Marys. Uh, Jesus was actually casting out demons from her. I think it was seven demons is what the text yeah. says. So she had multiple demons. Yeah. Poor girl. Uh, <laughs> we don't get too much information in regards to like her backstory of how these demons came about in her life and how she ended up being manifested with demons but yeah i mean because there's a lot of different ways because some situations were like crazy like naked guy in the cave yeah and other times it was like oh this person has this illness that mm-hmm. they've had for years mm-hmm. it must be a demon so we don't yeah. know like what exactly the manifestation of demons were in her mm-hmm. life uh but apparently it was some demonic activity that was oppressing her and, and jesus had freed her from that Yeah, so after he freed her from it, we see that Mary follows Jesus closely. And he she actually appears to become a bit of a leader within this movement as well, this religious movement that was happening during the days of Jesus. And in Luke 8, we're told that she was one of the women who was traveling with Jesus along with the 12 disciples. Not following the Billy Graham rule. No. Come on now. No. Come on, Jesus. (laughs) And in Luke 8, uh, verse 3, it says that Mary was among those who were traveling with Jesus and his disciples and were providing for their needs out of her own resources. So from that, we can actually see that she had to have had some type of wealth in, in some degree to be able to actually provide for the financial needs of the ministry Jesus had. Um. 
And we also see that she had some level of independence to be able to travel with them and to be able to assist them in a financial way. So based on just these subtle details that come out in Luke's account, we see she had influence and she was a leader to some degree within the ministry of Jesus. Yeah, she was one of the first major donors of Jesus's ministry. Mm. And we actually see both in Mark 16 and in John 20 that after Jesus resurrected that she was the first person to physically see him. She wasn't necessarily the first person to see that that the tomb was empty, but she was the the first person to see the resurrected Jesus. Jesus. Not Mm. the first woman, the first person to see him. And so that's significant there. And even just the resurrection account in general that the, it was the women that was bring that were bringing this news back to the twelve, and in that time, a, a woman's testimony wasn't even admissible in court, and yet they were the first proclaimers of the gospel. It wasn't men; it was women. And what's interesting is you always hear that when Christians like to lay out the evidence of the fact that the resurrection of Jesus was a real thing. We often turn to the fact that it was through the account of the women. And that's actually a huge support of the fact that we know the resurrection of Jesus was real and not a lie or made up or fake or or whatnot. But we use it as a reason we can be sure of it, but we don't actually think too much about the way that Jesus chose to reveal himself to them first. Like we don't think of the women in that process. We think of the fact that this is great evidence and then we kind of just brush the women aside. But if you really think about it, Jesus, that was a very intentional. And I don't think it was purely for the sake of making sure that we had solid evidence later on in our lives. Right. There was something about the women. and I don't think Jesus was thinking about the forensics of it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. What he was thinking was, again, like what we see in Luke's account, he's giving value and honor and respect uh, to women and also welcoming them into the kingdom work in the same way that men get to be part of that kingdom work. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, what are the far-reaching implications of Jesus doing that other than say, like, hey, that's some real good evidence because mm-hmm. what kind of idiot would tr- cook up a story and then tell it to women? Like, the one, like one is pretty dismissive compared to the other. Yeah. Cool. So we are moving out of the merry phase of this podcast. <laughs> On to our next influential female leader in the New Testament, and that is Priscilla. Good old Priscilla. So she or is Prisca, often... Or depending on where you see her in the text. Or what? Prisca. Oh, yeah. yeah. Was it like her... I think it was like for a nickname. short yeah. nickname. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Silas is short for Sylvanus. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oftentimes we see Priscilla next listed next to her husband, Aquila, which... Sometimes I think people think Priscilla and Aquila are two females because... It's a pretty feminine sounding name. Yeah. yeah. In the English language, it sounds a bit feminine. But Priscilla is the wife and Aquila is the husband. And this is really a dynamic couple that are is a team of teachers and church leaders that we read about. What is interesting is Priscilla is always listed first... Yeah, I don't know about always. I'd have to double check that, but certainly a vast majority more, of the times that more than not exactly. Yeah, okay. it is. It is more likely wherever you read about Priscilla and Aquila, 
Priscilla is almost always mentioned first. I, I only just don't say always because there might be one in there. Okay. So I don't know if there is or not. I but. am retracting the word always <laughs> and I am going to insert most often. Usually. <laughs> so, and the significance to the way that Priscilla is listed before Aquila is during this time when you would list leaders together, you would put the more prominent leader first. And Priscilla is usually first, which means she was probably the more prominent leader between her and her husband. It was her. Yeah, and we see that principle play out in Acts a couple different times. Mm -hmm. Like when Saul of Tarshish was converted and he was traveling around with Barnabas, it would say Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. But then there was this moment in the narrative where it shifts and then it says Paul and Barnabas, the names flip as Paul was rising to prominence among uh, the Christian leaders as an apostle. We see that flip. And so when you see Priscilla's name first, there's something very telling. There's something very intentional Mm -hmm. that the author Luke is giving you in naming Priscilla first, that she was actually the more prominent, the more respected Uh, among the two leaders. And we also see it in Romans. And the only reason I point that out is because some people might suggest, well, of course Luke was doing that because he really draws the value of women out in his gospel. And he wrote Acts too, so it makes sense why it happens in Acts. But it also happens in Romans, which was written by Paul. So this goes to show that it wasn't just Luke. Yeah, even Paul is recognizing Mm -hmm. that she's the more prominent of the two. Right. It wasn't just a bent that Luke had, and maybe Luke was just seeing it through a different angle. Paul himself writes this in Romans. So again, I just think that's an important piece to note in case you think Luke has like some favoritism going on. Luke has his liberal agenda. (laughs) Something. Yeah. So that's Priscilla. And both Priscilla and Aquila, they were teachers and they were teachers of teachers. And probably their most famous student was Apollos, who himself became a very prominent teacher in the early Christian movement. All right. So our next lady is Lydia of Philippi. Yeah. Lydia was a successful businesswoman who Paul and his missionary team met while they were in Philippi. Uh, after Paul like preaches to her, she ends up coming to faith in Jesus. And immediately she becomes a supporter and a friend to Paul. And in terms of support, we actually mean like financially. We're talking about cheddar. We're, yeah, not we're just t- like, I, you know, I'm so supportive of you. Like she didn't just support him She's in like, prayer. I, I she support supported you in prayer yeah. and also here's a check. Yeah. <laughs> so she was another uh, major donor in the work, <laughs> in the work and ministry of this time of Paul instead of earlier. We listed um, Martha with Jesus, but Mary Magdalene. Dang it. We listed <laughs> Mary. There's too many M's. You could have just, just said Mary. You didn't even have to know which one. I and you know, would have been right. I know. I'm sorry. Uh, strike that from the podcast. So she, uh, back to Lydia, Lydia and her whole household were baptized and a group of believers began meeting in her home as a house church. And why that is significant is because if you were opening up your home to be a house church, you were most often the one leading that house church. And 
shepherding the believers there and really growing that group of believers. So for her to open up her home and lead that house church actually meant she was a leader within the church. Yeah, you kind of became the de facto administrator and in many times the de facto kind of shepherd of that group. And Lydia, as a successful business person, was well equipped to be doing that. What's also interesting about Lydia is that the Church of Philippi uh, had actually become really generous in terms of their financial support in the mission of Jesus. And Lydia likely also played a key role in this movement and in this charge of them just becoming a church that adopted the idea of generosity. And that we can find in Philippians 1, 3 to 5. So she was a leader and she was also uh, financially very supportive and urging others within her church to be financially supportive too. So yeah, so that's Lydia. Uh, Next up, we have Phoebe. Yeah, so Phoebe is an important character in one of the most important letters that the Apostle Paul ever wrote, which is the book of Romans. And the thing is, when you wrote something and you wanted to have it mailed to somebody else, like there was no like Roman equivalent to like the USPS. There was no DHL. There was no UPS, FedEx, Amazon drones. There was nothing. Like you had (laughs) to basically wrap up this letter and give it to someone that you trusted to travel. And maybe they were traveling that way anyways. Maybe this is just something that they did. But they had to personally deliver that letter. And when it came to these kinds of letters that were read to large groups of people, read to Uh, the church in Rome, and really it was the churches in Rome because they would meet in these different cell groups um, because they couldn't all gather together. They were in this densely populated city of Rome. There was no meeting space for them. Uh, There was likely would have been persecution if they came out and did that in in a large gathering space. And so they were in these smaller house churches. And so Paul needed to send somebody not only to read the letter of Romans to them, but also to explain and answer any questions like, well, what did Paul mean when he said da-da-da and such and such? And like, oh, I was there when he wrote this and he explained it to me. Uh, Here's what he meant. And so in Romans 16, Paul names Phoebe as the deacon that he is commending to them. Which means... Teaching, Which means the first person to ever do an expositional Bible study Mm. on the book of Romans was a woman. I've actually had a conversation with someone about Phoebe and her role in understanding the way that the letters would be delivered to the churches. And um, I got some sideways eyes when I had said, That meant that Phoebe was teaching and preaching the letter to the Roman church from Paul. Well, not necessarily because, you know, like, that's not expressly what he said. Right. But in all the other situations where Paul commends somebody to a group of people, Mm -hmm. we reasonably assume that that person not only delivered the letter, but they read the letter and they explained what Paul meant, Mm -hmm. which, if you look at what preaching is. That's essentially what it is. (laughs) Right. So this usually is one that we question and we question it because Phoebe's a woman. And it's also interesting because Paul calls her a deacon. And a lot of times uh, translations will 
translate that as helper rather than deacon. We're like, well, it was deacon. She was a deacon in the sense that she was a helper. And so she wasn't officially operating in the role of a deacon when he sent her. And there's nothing in the language itself, in the text itself, that would lead you to that, but really only the assumption that this woman could not be a deacon. And it's actually interesting, in that same Romans 16 passage, there's a, there's another interesting name that's in there that we don't know much about this person at all, uh, but there's been a lot of translational hanky-panky that's been going on with with her as well. <laughs> and that's Junia who's mentioned. And the verse goes, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles as they were in Christ before me. And so some translators want to change the feminine name Junia to Junias. They're like, oh, there must have been a sigma missing on that one because... Clearly, a person who is a woman wouldn't be highly regarded among the apostles. And so they say, like, well, there must have been an S lost in the transmission of the text at some point, but really there wasn't. (laughs) Or if they don't do that, they'll try to retranslate the statement uh, to well-known among the apostles, as is done in the ESV, as opposed to highly regarded among the apostles. So they put some distance there from... Junia basically being accepted uh, on a level approaching, you know, equality with the the influence of the apostles. Now, the apostles, they have a unique authority, but there were certainly like leaders within the church that were approaching a, a similar level of leadership influence. And mm-hmm. so to put some distance between that, they say like, instead of saying, well, regarded highly among the apostles, well-known to the apostles. And technically, right. in the Greek, There's one room flies. for both. But it's interesting the decisions that are made when a certain theology is at play. So we don't know much about Junia other than she was highly regarded among the apostles. And that Paul thought that was noteworthy enough to mention. Right, and that would likely mean she she had some form of leadership outside of taking care of her home only. Right. Yeah. Sewing and knitting, etc. Yes. She was well known and there was a lost phrase in there for her sewing, knitting, etc. among the apostles. <laughs> right. That tunic ever ripped. <laughs> you called Junia right over. <laughs> Anyways, we have another businesswoman on this list and her name is Chloe. Yeah, we don't know too much about Chloe. Uh, Her name is only mentioned once in the Bible, and it's really in passing. Uh, But what we do know is that apparently she was an influential person in the city of Corinth. And we read that in 1 Corinthians 1.11. It says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So, again, we don't have too much besides these words, but... The fact that Chloe had people. Yeah, like have your people talk to my people. And Chloe. those people reported back to Paul. Chloe's people were talking to Paul's people. And yeah. then because of that, Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth. Yes. And he says Chloe's people. Like he understands. He recognizes her people. That and they, that she's. They are the people that belong to Chloe. Yeah, because Chloe is in a place of leadership. And 
whatever she was saying had enough weight and enough significance and it mattered enough to Paul for him to then respond by writing a letter to the entire church in Corinth. Yeah, and we don't know if Chloe, uh, I said she was a businesswoman, but we don't know if she was a businesswoman or a church leader or both. We don't really know too much about her. But it is interesting that Paul relates to her as an equal. Again, he's an apostle, so he has a unique calling and a unique authority in that sense. But from an organizational leadership perspective, he recognizes her leadership. He recognizes her authority. He recognizes that she has people underneath her that are mm-hmm. that are reporting back to her and who are speaking on her behalf as the figurehead and as the leader. And he doesn't make any editorial comment on that at all. He just recognizes it as the fact of the matter that Chloe is this important leader that I correspond with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we don't have too much to say on Chloe other than we see elements of leadership in Paul's writing. Uh, So our next two, which are often found together and they are, I always envision them as like sweet old ladies when I read the text. Oh, the guy get their hair set once a week kind of people. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Lois and Eunice. And this uh, is Timothy's mother and grandmother. Yeah, his mother was Eunice and his grandmother was Lois. Yeah. Lois is the one getting her hair set. Yeah. Eunice is a little bit more stylish, you know. Sweet Lois. I like that girl. Uh, so here's what Paul actually says about these two women in 2 Timothy 1.5. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So while it's unclear whether these two women led in any official capacity, um, it is clear that Paul recognized their faithfulness and how it played a pivotal role in the life of the next generation, um, specifically in Timothy. But we also see uh, their impact in the kingdom work at large. And so he's recognizing that and giving them honor. And a lot of times I've heard... um, People say, like, see, you're supposed to be like Lois and Eunice, like going home, taking care of your kids, raising your kids in the way of the Lord. That's what you're supposed to do. But Paul is um, is recognizing that and telling you, like, that is your place. I wouldn't say that's what he's saying. I think he's certainly giving honor to them. And yeah, as parents, mother and father, we are called to raise our kids in the way of the Lord and impact the next generation. But I wouldn't say Paul is suggesting that is their only way to influence or lead anyone in in matters of the faith. Right. So we don't want to discount the fact that that's an important homemaking Mm -hmm. is an important vocation, both in the life of men and women. And I think mothers are particularly influential in the lives of their children and and all of those things. So we don't want to discount that. Uh, But that isn't to say that it's the only thing. But then again, it's not an unimportant thing. And we see that here where Paul is clearly Mm -hmm. calling that out and recognizing that and saying, hey, Timothy wouldn't be here or or where he is today if it weren't for your influence. Mm -hmm. And now Timothy has been raised up by the Apostle Paul. He was a bishop over churches. He was making moves and saving souls. And so it it was all due in part to his mother and his grandmother having such strong faith. Yeah. Uh, and then we are down to our last two 
our last two influential women that we want to talk about is not the only influential woman in the Bible. I just want to say this list is not exhaustive, but we are down to our last two. And I always get these names wrong. So, Dale. Oh, I was I was hoping to see your pronunciation on nope, these. Nope. Nope. We went over it before the podcast. I was like, wait, so how do I say these names again? I'm just going to send it your way. Go ahead. Yeah, and You take it. it <laughs> it's interesting that we're we're ending on these because the only time we hear about these two ladies is when they got in a fight with each other. <laughs> but true. actually in that, we see that they were important leaders and they were doing important leadership things. Mm. And that is Yodia and Syntyche. Yodia. I always want to call her Yudia. Yudia? Yeah, I know. Okay. Yodia. Yeah, Yodia. Yep. Syntyche I always get right. It's funny because that's the one that just looks like a jumble of letters to me. That one makes the most sense to me. Oh, interesting. <laughs> well, these two ladies were leaders in the church in Philippi, and we heard about them in Philippians. And the reason we know about them is because they were fighting with each other. They they had some kind of issue. And Paul doesn't tell us what the problem was. And that seems to indicate that it wasn't like a sinfulness problem. There wasn't somebody who was sinning against somebody else or doing something inappropriate or something like that. And Paul doesn't actually weigh in on what side people should take or what exactly they should do. And so that seems to indicate that there was some kind of leadership issue. There was some kind of like, hey, what color should the carpet be? Or (laughs) that's what churches fight about. This is so silly. But uh, it was something probably much more important than that. Like, what direction should we be headed? How should we be handling and leading through this difficult situation? How can we cast a vision? What should our vision be for this church and for this community? They were having those kinds of disagreements. And so Paul urges them to agree with one another and to resolve that conflict. And really within that, what he's doing, again, is he is recognizing the fact that they are leaders. He's recognizing the fact that they are influential. He's recognizing the fact that they're making decisions on behalf of other people, both men and women, and that those decisions are important. And he doesn't editorialize that in in the slightest, but he Mm. takes it as a given. Yeah. And actually tries to help them through that situation. Right. And it shows us that he's trying to even help them lead their own churches. Yeah. that he And even the fact that he's not going to micromanage them. Mm-hmm. He's just but telling he's them, hey, trusting... you guys need to work this out and get on yeah. the same page as each other. Mm-hmm. But he's not going to say, and here's exactly what you should do. Mm-hmm. Take the leadership reins away from them. He's yeah. going to let them lead through it. Right. And so what's interesting is that in this disagreement, Paul actually encourages them to seek unity, which you were talking about, like, hey, guys get on the same page, but he encourages them to do it through prayer and rejoicing, which is where we see a very popular verse about us not being anxious in anything, but bringing your um, prayers before the Lord. And that actually comes through this confrontation or disagreement among these two influential leaders that are women. Yeah. And another verse that comes after that is, and, uh, you know, the peace of God, which transcends understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We take that as like, yes, Jesus will be my peace. And that's true, but that's not what that verse is saying. That Mm. that verse is talking about like, there's going to be interpersonal peace that transcends understanding. Like how do we even get here as your hearts and minds are guarded in Christ Jesus? Yeah. And so all of that was revolving around this leadership issue that was going on with Yodia and Syntyche. Yeah. So those are the, the women that we wanted to cover in, in this podcast, but, Something else that's interesting is in the book of Acts and um, 
Yeah, I think it's actually in Acts itself. So Luke describes the faith of unnamed and unnumbered women of high standing and leading. And you can read that in Acts 13.50 and Acts 17.4. Yeah, women of high standing and leading women are the two phrases he uses. Yeah, so he's describing women that are in places of leadership within the church and women who are are highly respected among male leaders as well. And so we will never really know how many women were leading in the days of the early church, at least not on this side of eternity, but the gospel accounts give, and even um, other areas in the New Testament, they give us glimpses of the fact that women played a very large role in the early church and in teaching and preaching as well, which I know makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Uh, And I think it makes us so uncomfortable because our culture has told us it's supposed to make us a bit uncomfortable in the way that we've been raised. So that's why we thought it would be good to just look at the biblical text and see, hey, are, are there women that are in forms of leadership in the church? And we do see that to be true. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. Also be sure to head over to our website, hernhim.com, and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs, and other helpful resources. We'd also love to hear from you, so you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. Scripture and brain science agree. Meditating on God's Word transforms us and reduces stress in our lives. I'm Jody Nisnik, host of So Much More, Creating Space for God, a scripture meditation podcast. And each week I give you space to hear God's Word, listen to the Spirit, and pray about what's on your heart. And then we have a thoughtful conversation with guests to help us go deeper. Listen and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.